Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, John. Yeah. What's that at the end of the table, gleaming like a great monolith from two thousand and one? It's a. Uh, it's. It looks like it's got some kind of writing on there, Andy. But it's. It's almost impossible to read because oh, it's transparent. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, look! It's an award that Backlisted won the other day. Oh, enough of this! Come on. <laughs> on Monday, you said to me, oh, "Do you think we should mention it on?" on the podcast winning the award because you know I, I, I'm worried it seems a bit you know uh, uh, arrogant and I said oh, I think we should power through that pain <laughs> we, we won this award we because won you know put in the hours let's be honest exactly. and also when it was announced we should say how blown away we were by the number of lovely people listeners to this podcast who tweeted us or called us or emailed us to say how much they love the podcast and all the rest of it. Thank you very yeah, much. I mean, it's incredible responses. And it is, you know, it, we shouldn't have to say it, but obviously you, you're only as good as the people who listen to what you do. But is that really true? <laughs> no, I think, no. You see, as good I think, as your guests is what I would nah, say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. More I think we're as good as our guests, yes. I think the thing uh, We would do it even if no one listened. Is that what you're saying? Maybe that's true, actually. We, probably, we just do enjoy it. So. You do it if less people listen. <laughs> I thought, uh, this is backlisted. Hey! I, th- I think we should dedicate it to someone, or at least have a mention, about to former producer Matt Hall, who... Oh, no, that's a lovely thing, Nick. Yeah, yes. Do you know what's happened to Matt? No. He's only gone and slipped over some leaves and broken his leg very badly. Oh, no. Yeah, and has had to have an operation. Mucilage, as yes. it's known. Is that, what, is that right? Well, that's what you slip on. It's what goes on. The, that's the thing that makes the trains run right. slowly. So he'll be listening in his, uh, in his bed, probably, where he can't move to this episode. Absolutely. Let's raise a decaffeinated coffee to Matt, founder of this particular feast. We should also say, we're not only are we are the Future Book Podcast of the Year, but we have the Future Book Person of the Year in the, the studio. Indeed. Because we are in a studio today rather than around the table of Unbound. So, Kit, you won Future Book person of the year didn't you indeed i did and you gave a stirring speech i gave a speech basically acknowledging that i've been in the industry for five minutes <laughs> and don't really know what i'm doing but thank you all the same is basically what i said to the industry for tolerating my criticisms thereof it's great i love that thing you said about you sent it to penguin and they turned it into a book and that was your understanding of, Completely. of the publishing process and i honestly believe that i didn't know about an agent didn't know about an editor and i really thought they'd turn it around in about six weeks you sent it in they went we like that they got some sort of photo or artwork put a wrapper on it three for two table job done <laughs> I was really shocked. I mean, I, I signed with Penguin and my book came out a year and a half later. I was 
really. What were all those people doing? Right? <laughs> yeah, I that, was was like, the, that was the theme of your story. <laughs> well, yeah, what do you, get it out? But also on today's episode, it is prizes for all because our other guest Charlotte <laughs> yes. is also a prize winner. Please tell us which award you recently won. I won the Arnold Bennett. Literary prize. <laughs> I am the most appropriate guest to have on this particular podcast, owing to my incredible prize-winning Bennett-based. <laughs> so, should I tell you the prize? Eligible for the prize were writers either born in or writing about not Staffordshire but North Staffordshire. So you can see it was an extremely wide field. <laughs> I'm incredibly proud to have won it, actually, but yes. Oh, right. Shall we... Um, uh, more of Arnold Bennett later. Let's, crack we, on let's not rest on our laurels. No. <laughs> crack on. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us literally in the back streets of Edwardian Clerkenwell, browsing in a dusty shop, every available inch of space covered in tottering piles of books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and to quote Arnold Bennett, like all authors, I feel deeply convinced that I am not understood as completely as my amazing merits deserve. <laughs> <laughs> not a modest man. No. And uh, joining us today for the second time, welcome back, Kit Duvall. Thank you. Kit is a writer and activist whose debut novel, My Name is Leon, was an international bestseller shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award, longlisted for the Desmond Elliott Prize, and which won the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award for 2017. Her second, The Trick of Time, was published to great acclaim in 2018, and her most recent, a young adult novel called Becoming Diner, was published earlier this year by Orion Children's Books. Furthermore, <laughs> she is the editor of the anthology of working-class writers Common People, published by our sponsors Unbound, and the force behind the Kit Creative Scholarships for budding writers from a low-income households or marginalised backgrounds. Open brackets, continuing the work of Arnold Bennett. Indeed. Amazing. Indeed. Closed brackets. We'll talk about that yeah, later. Uh, for all this, and for being generally a force for good in the book industry, she was named 2019 Future Book Person of the Year. Her previous appearance on Backlisted was on episode 26. God. Back in the archive which we recorded on Wax Cylinder, <laughs> uh, where she talks about So Long, See You Tomorrow by William Maxwell. Yes. That's a terrific book, terrific Beautiful. episode, right? Yeah. Kit is joined by the writer and journalist Charlotte Higgins. Hello. Hello, Charlotte. Charlotte is the chief culture writer of The Guardian. She's the author of several books on aspects of the ancient world. Under Another Sky, Journeys in Roman Britain, which was published by Cape in 2013, was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Her latest book, Red Thread on Mazes and Labyrinths, won, as discussed, yeah. the 2019 Arnold <laughs> Bennett Prize. <laughs> and Charlotte has written for The New Yorker, The New Statesman and Prospect, and written and presented documentaries for BBC radios three and four. In 2010, she won the Classical Association Prize for her books and journalism, awarded for the person deemed to have done most to bring classics to a broad audience. Excellent work. And in 2019, she was chosen for a British Council showcase by novelist Elif Shafak as one of 10 brilliant women writers working in Britain today. That, Thanks, Elif. Yeah, it doesn't get better than that, does it? And oh, that is just, a, those, are the, those are the edited highlights of your CV. 
Yeah, well, there's this sort of awful, shameful fact that I, I was on deadline. I was trying to write a Guardian leader on negative capability. <gasps> wow. I like that subject. Uh, yeah. We all well, don't read subject. it. It's probably terrible. And I was in a bit of a faff and a state, and I got an email asking for my biog, and I just sent the one that I had on my email at work, which was the one that I'd sent to... Hillary Clinton's people <laughs> trying to persuade them that I was worthy of interviewing her. <laughs> so as I said, <laughs> Andy and John, I had pumped up to full fuck you levels with sort of <laughs> essentially all my swimming certificates. <laughs> it was like an Arnold Bennett novel. Yeah. <laughs> it was shaming. So, well, we should get into the matter in hand. Kit and Charlotte are here joining us to talk about Riceman Steps by Arnold Bennett. First published, I hadn't realised, but of course it was published by Castle & Co, that I briefly was managing director of back in the, in the 90s. First published by Castle & Co in 1923, and it won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Fiction in that year. That uh, prize, founded in Edinburgh, one of the oldest literary prizes with the Hawthornden Prize, and still going. So a prize-winning Arnold Bennett novel. But before we limp towards the shabby streets of Clerkenwell, Andy, what have you been reading this week or this year? Uh, so this week I have been reading another novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. In this case, Never Let Me Go. And we've talked about Ishiguro on the podcast before. When his last novel, The Buried Giant, came out, we were up in Durham, and it's where we were recording an episode about Alma Cogan by Gordon Byrne. And John, you just read The Berry Giant and we talked about it. So you can hear John talking about The Berry Giant by Ishiguro back on episode 54. But over the last few years, I have been, for pleasure rather than self-improvement, reading novels by Ishiguro, who until about five years ago, I had never read anything by. And when we were in Bath recording our Angela Carter episode about 18 months ago, I was reading Ishiguro's novel The Unconsoled. And I can remember being in the B&B or walking around the streets, <laughs> thinking about and reading The Uncle Tom, thinking, what is, what, uh, what, what's this book? Well, I don't understand this at all. And I decided about two weeks ago, 18 months after I'd read it, that I really like it. But it took me that long to let it settle in my brain. And so I've come to Never Let Me Go as the, I think maybe the fifth of Ishiguro's, maybe the sixth novel of his that I've read. I really loved it. I'm sure many listeners have read Never Let Me Go. It is, you know, one of the most widely acclaimed literary novels of this century so far. It's been made into a film. Lots of people know about it. One of Ishiguro's most popular books, along with The Remains of the Day. But the two things that occurred to me about Never Let Me Go are, uh, the first thing is, I'll tell you a thing I really dislike in reviews or in blurbs. It always seems like the absolute refuge of a critic who doesn't really have anything to say about a book is when they say something like and this novel asks us profound questions about what it means to be human right it means they've got they haven't got anything but it, but that's you know there's a good 15 it's, to 20 words they've got there it, it's right it's right up there with so, so master storyteller yeah, isn't it right it's right up there with master storyteller yeah. so i was reading never let me go i finished it and as i was reading i was thinking the thing about never let me go which is a book about cloning yeah spoiler, is it is a book that asks us questions about what it means to be human. <laughs> <laughs> that, in this case... In is quite a literal sense. Literally true, right? It's literally true. And then I was looking in the front, like you do, 
about uh, what, what, what the reviews had said. And the first review says Ishiguro asks us profound questions about what it means to be human. <laughs> right, that's the first one. And the second one says Kazuo Ishiguro is a master storyteller. So, <laughs> so we are, I like to think on Backlisted, we're making reviewing books harder and harder <laughs> for the lazy hacks we're, out there who do we are, we are watching and we are listening we are, we are and we are watching. reading. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, more seriously, that what I found with Ishiguro, as I read more of him, it's a sort of object lesson in one of the things that I think we do usefully here on Backlisted, that each one of his books I read, I don't like each one more than the previous one necessarily, but I do feel more at ease in the world he creates and his approach to putting you slightly ill at ease, I think is one of the great Ishiguro things, that he, he likes writing about people who can't admit something or don't have access to all the information they should have, that you, the reader, perhaps do have. Or in the case of The Unconsoled and The Buried Giant, you, the reader, don't have. You know, it, it, the, the literal walking around in a fog in the buried giant, it's yeah. it, literally there is a fog, but there's also it's a book about forgetfulness. The unconsoled is a book about dreams. I had a conversation with somebody the other night. I was trying to explain this thing that Ishiguro has, which I think is quite rare in a writer, is that he, you know, another cliche, he never writes the same book twice. But actually, what he's like, I was thinking, he's like one, he's like a sort of a child's demon in Pullman. Each he he has this ability to change so that the books seem completely different from the outside, and yet there's somehow there's an Ishiguro-ness that, that links them yeah. all together. And I don't know what that is. I mean, I think you'd have to, it would, you know, you'd probably have to sit down and really, really study and think and, and, and notice, but it's, it's an amazing thing, don't you? Yeah, I, I agree. Mm. I think that's a really good point. And it's partly because the prose, he does this thing in the prose in the books where he, he and certainly in Never Let Me Go, the character who narrates the novel, Stroke, Ishiguro, the writer yeah. behind her, is constantly playing chicken with cliche in the prose. So superficially, the prose is almost bland yeah. and almost mm. made up of inevitable um, doublings of phrase. And, and, and yet at the same time, there's a certain constant veering away from that as well. Can so I just ask about what you said about... Um, two years later, 18 months later, you think, oh, that was a great book, not really rating it at the time. Has the converse happened where you've read a book and thought, God, that was really great, and then two years later or a year later go, actually, it wasn't that good? Absolutely. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. We've done books on here, which I'm not going to spoil <laughs> for anybody, so they then go re back retrospectively yeah. and think and think, oh, but he liked it then. Yeah. But it's an inevitable fact yeah. of life that, we, if, for instance, we've done books on here where it's fortunate we've recorded them, the, the episode, the week after we read the book, because then I'm still thinking about the positives about it. And as time goes on, I will often look back and think, wait a minute. I, kind of, I can't remember. Any, I, I, I remember I, I quite totally liking it. I totally relate to this. Yeah. I yeah. mean, some quite well-reviewed books yes. of the last year, actually, which, I, which I've read and thought, wow, and then... And either, have, either people have worked on me with their doubts, which is a, a different category yeah. maybe, or I've kind of somehow, the yeah, scaffolding's yeah. fallen away. And then, the, yeah, the, there's a whole category of slow burn books, aren't there? Books that nudge at you. Yeah, and, stone in the shoe books where yes, you kind of, you just, they're you sort of annoyed by them, but actually the, the annoyance turns into 
into yeah. kind of admiration at a certain yeah. point. Because there are two categories of, of coming away from a book. One is that public opinion has got to you. You've read in a review and you thought, oh, actually, that was true. Or someone said, oh, I didn't like it because, yeah. and you've had to go along with it. And then there's just the reflections on a book that you have. And that's that's a better coming away somehow. It's you choosing to see the flaws of a book rather than yeah. Yeah. liking it and then being swayed by people's yeah. opinions. Arnold Bennett has something to say on this topic, so we'll come on to that later. <laughs> well, that's miraculous. But first, John, what have you been reading this um, week? I've read a book called The Northumbrians by Dan Jackson. It's a history of the northeast of England. And it's a history of the northeast of England from the prehistory right through to Cheryl Cole, who makes a, a small appearance in the book towards the end. It's sort of an exemplary of its kind. I mean, it, you know, it's easy to do this and to make it very boring. I'll read a tiny little passage to give you the flavour. He does it with humour. He's a he's a historian, but he's also a, a great popularist. It's full of amazing stuff. I mean, my family are from there, so I have a I have a strong uh, interest in it. But I learnt a massive amount from this book, and there's some marvellous marvellous details. Uh, Muhammad Ali getting his second marriage blessed in the, in the mosque at South Shields. There's a huge Muslim community in South Shields. The detail is wonderful. But what I like about his approach is to, it's very easy to sentimentalise northern working class life. He goes into the drinking culture and, you know, he said, you know, there is something to admire about the sort of the, the seriousness of a night out in the big market and the, the attention that people put into their appearance. But he also then writes, I think, movingly about Catherine Cookson and alcohol and, you know, that 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 how paralyzing that's been. It's been very, very well reviewed from, you know, famously tough critics like Jonathan Meads on one side to Tom Holland to uh, radical historians like Robert Coles. He's personal, but he doesn't get into self-indulgent psychogeography. It's also important at the moment in the middle of Brexit, this the region that gets tarred with the Brexit brush. This was the part of Europe that saved Western civilization. you know, Jarrow, Monk, Wearmouth. You know, it was, it was, it's got such an interesting and rich history. Can I ask you a publishing question? that yeah. occurs to me around the publication of this book. Yeah. Is it a tough sell for the publisher or can they look at it and think to themselves, what we don't sell in Surrey, <laughs> we will sell more of locally? It's a really interesting question because one of the things I've noticed, it's published by Hearst, who are, who are a kind of specialist history publisher, but it's out of print on Amazon. I mean, you know, it's one to two months on Amazon. And I think that's because it has been so brilliantly reviewed. And I think what the reviews have said, don't think you have to be from the Northeast or living in the Northeast to find this book. Northumbria was a pretty important... It was very important to the Romans. And there were Iraqi, Iraqi course, yeah. sailors patrolling yeah. the mouth of the Tyne, Syrian people buried in South Shea, all the, you know, I mean, it's so rich. Too many studies of the North of England can take on a tiresomely rhapsodic tone. We should be wary of a sort of regional jingoism, lest we turn into a pastiche of the character from the BBC comedy series Goodness Gracious Me, who claims everything of any worth is Indian. Locomotive engines? Northumbrian. Lucozade? Northumbrian. I can be guilty of that feeling myself, a certain chippiness, a sense of being overlooked, underestimated and occasionally patronised. The sense that it's in its industrial heyday, Northumbria's was a great civilization that has now gone with the wind, was summed up by the South Shields miner Tommy Turnbull, who described the Northumbrian proletariat as a great tribe of people now decimated, degraded and dispersed, and their demise has left the country forever as impoverished by this loss as have the Americas by the loss of their Apaches and their Incas. 
the Yorkshireman Frank Atkinson, the founder of the North of England Open Air Museum at Beamish in County Durham, where I used to go all the time as a kid, wrote that he built the museum to inculcate pride for the people of the region, have a curiously sad chip on the shoulder. We lack the benefits that the people of the South have, mixed illogically with the belief that we have a marvellous, self-reliant region. Quite remarkably, these conflicting views are almost true. As a result, Northumbrians can be as tediously chauvinistic as the most boring Yorkshireman, though, as the Teesider Harry Pearson put it in a piece on the charms of Tyneside, its atmosphere of almost pathological friendliness and good humour stems from one simple thing. All Geordies believe themselves blessed to have been born here. Anyway, it's a really readable and really interesting bit of, of history. Now it's commercials. <laughs> the first thing to say about Riceman Steps is that Every bookseller should be issued this, shouldn't they? God, yeah. From the dirt, the boredom, the tedium. <laughs> His fundamental absolute as a bookseller, lack of interest in what he's selling. <laughs> Nobody reads in this book, apart from, apart from the doctor who comes in and buys a book out of politeness, as far as oh, I can the Shakespeare. And it, it, yeah. And he doesn't know what he's buying. No. He and, would be fobbed off with anything. And Mr Earl Forward, who is the, the proprietor of said bookshop, what I love in that scene where the doctor's buying it, he's dissing the guy as he's watching me, like every bookseller yes. does. He doesn't know what he's asking for. He's just trying yeah. to impress me. He doesn't really want the book at all. And it, it, yeah. For anyone who's worked in a bookshop, the unexpected joy of this book is, is, is huge. I, Kit and Charlotte, I felt, as I was reading it, your suggestion... I, I felt ashamed. Yeah. Not of the behaviour of the booksellers, because that's just true. <laughs> But that I hadn't read it before, because given that I, you know, I was a bookseller and I, I have written about bookshops and I'm endlessly fascinated by those transactions between reasons why we buy a book, uh, you know, without number and wanting to read it is only one of them. And this is such a great book on that topic and the reality of shifting stock around and all that stuff. Because I thought, why haven't I read this? Yeah. So we're going to return to this question. Great. Why isn't Arnold Bennett? more widely read? I honestly don't know, because when we were doing the 100 novels for the BBC, yeah. and I was one of the judges, we all had to lose something in that 100. You know, we were putting forward out the books that we thought should appear on the list. And I was sort of trying to get, because there were categories, so there were categories like family, there was class, there was identity, there was adventure. And for every category, I was putting an Arnold Bennett in. I was putting an Arnold Bennett in. And I lost them all in the cot. I mean, he doesn't appear in the hundred, and Amazing. it is oh, it God. is tragic. I mean, it's tragic. But I had oh, to well lose done, one. Well and done, so, Charlotte, Charlotte, which books would we have expected might have made it in there by Bennett? I think the Old Wives' Tale is an absolute masterpiece, which is a novel about two sisters. Right, that's my next one. Great. Yeah, who are who are born in Burslem, who uh, live in a sort of upper working class respectability in Burslem and one of them leaves and goes to France and becomes slightly scandalous and then there's a whole section that is about the Paris Commune and it's wonderful anyway she comes back and it's about the bifurcation of these two lives and it's it's got enormous range he did, as with every book, minimal historical research. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever been able to find anything dreadfully wrong with it that's fabulous and what about Anna of the Five Towns? Yes. It's wonderful. Clayhanger. Yeah. The Card. 
The Card is one of the great comic novels, and I do think it's an entry-level drug for yes. potential Bennett Helen lovers. with the High Hand is, is exactly oh, the same. Now, we, there was some talk that we were going to do Helen with the High Hand, and I, I read it a couple of weeks ago. That is a funny book. Very funny. Isn't it? It's a power struggle. You know, that's what the whole book's about. But it turns on the position of the salt cellar. I think it goes just there, whereas you think it goes there. Actually, it goes there. And this fight between these two people for the supremacy and the control of this house, it's the most minuscule domestic drama, and it's absolutely beautiful and hilarious. So some and, connections to this novel, to, to Rice yeah. and Steps in that. Then. And I think maybe this, this might help answer the question why... Is he so unfashionable? Possibly. Because that is possibly to do with the long tail of Virginia Woolf's yes. article, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, or is it the other way around, in which she she's responding to quite a mild criticism by Bennett of her Jacob's Room, which he said he loved, but he didn't think the characters were memorable. And so she writes in response um, a kind of evisceration, really, of these old-fashioned Edwardian authors, Goldsworthy, Wells and Brown, who, in particular, Bennett, she thinks he constructs character by, I suppose, the thingness of objects and how, how many times an old lady's glove has been mended and how her property is mortgaged and what rent she pays. And in the specificity of very ordinary things that might, as it were, be the position of a salt cellar on a table. Yeah. But I love... Wolf, yeah. come on. But she to was a me, terrible, terrible snob. I think yes. she didn't know that stuff. She didn't know no. about rents. And I mean, she, you know, she's got her 500 a year in a room of her own. This sort of texture, the minutiae of getting by and how important tiny objects are to the, the texture of someone's life, I think is Bennett all over. But I don't think she really kind of got that. We're going to talk a bit more about the chilling effect on Bennett's reputation of that specific essay a bit later on. But in terms of Bennett's reputation, if he's known for anything, it's not for literature. Um, but here is a clip from a television programme that was broadcast just a week ago about the thing for which he is now most famous. 48 chefs from across the UK are putting their reputations on the line in a bid to become professional MasterChef champion. We have six chefs outside waiting to perform a skills test. <laughs> Marcus, three of them, obviously going to do yours. Yep. What are you going to get them to do? I'm going to ask our chefs to make us an omelette Arnold Bennett. An omelette Arnold Bennett is a flat omelette served in a dish. I'm going to add a little bit of a twist. I'm going to take away the smoked haddock that normally goes with this dish, uh, and I'm going to ask our chefs to use crab meat instead. Uh, it's got Gruyere cheese, it's served with a hollandaise sauce over the top and gratinated under the grill. How long have they got for your Arnold Bennett? I'm going to give them 20 minutes. <laughs> right, OK, let's see how it's done. Do you know the history? Did Arnold Bennett, the author, order it in the Savoy? That's it. And it's become famous. You worked at the Savoy, didn't you? I did, yeah. That was one of the first jobs I had in, in London. And um, for part of my time, I worked on what they was the potage and egg section, so I've made a lot of these over the years. <laughs> <laughs> that might be my favourite oh, clip we've oh, ever had on here. I was so <laughs> overjoyed when that came on the telly, which I watched. <laughs> my boyfriend on our, like, 
third date made me <laughs> and it as an homage to my <laughs> origin and literary taste <laughs> and was it and and uh, how do you feel it about it it would have passed the marcus wearing test but i do not approve of his non-canonical use of crap <laughs> what is he thinking no, of come on smoked haddock please. no as one of the chefs who made that dish said it's very nice, but you need a bit of a lie down afterwards. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's so rich. One of the cool. things about Bennett is that he is the epitome of the late 19th century, early 20th century literary panjandrum. He's the self-made chap issuing edicts. He's Somerset Maugham. He's, he's priestly. He's one of that lot. Tremendously popular, widely read influential in their day yeah. all of whom George have Saint faded Street. significantly Absolutely. and and certainly in the case of Bennett I mean how many novels did Arnold Bennett write this it's some incredible he, number he, in 1929 he wrote a little note in his diary saying I have written between 70 and 80 books I mean some of these were non-fiction some of these were things like journalism for women yeah. <laughs> which <laughs> I only half recommend that one um, <laughs> he wrote I've written between 70 and 80 books. To the general public, I've only written four, and this is a quote. They are The, the Old Wife's Tale, The Card, Clayhanger, and Riceyman Stats. All the others are made a reproach to me because they are neither The Old Wife's Tale, nor The Card, nor Clayhanger, nor Riceyman Stats. And Riceyman Stats would have been made a reproach too if the servant Elsie had not happened to be a very sympathetic character. Elsie saved Riceyman's steps from being called sordid and morbid and all sorts of bad adjectives. As if the niceness of a character had anything to do with the quality of the novel in which it appears. Yeah. But authors are never satisfied. <laughs> well, no, this is the so rapturous applause. Please. But he was peeved wasn't he? That basically he wrote Riceyman's steps to be a portrait of a miser. And he felt that that was the great strength of the book. Well, the book comes out, is widely recognised as a very good book, one of his best immediately. It's a bestseller. But then he has to put, put up with people telling him, thank oh, goodness for Elsie. Thank goodness for yeah. We love Elsie. So, so he felt he was, as you say, never happy, being praised for the wrong stuff. Kit, when did you first encounter Arnold Bennett? Um, or this book? So I started reading at all. I didn't read anything till I was about 23. Not a thing except what I had to read at school. And at 23, I read 10 books, which were really recommended to me by a military man. But one of them, apart from Riddle of the Sands and <laughs> War and Peace and Red Badge of Courage, was Madame Bovary. So I came to Arnold Bennett via France, really, because I found uh, Flaubert... And then I found Zola and Maupassant. Oh, Zola. Right, Zola. Yeah, absolutely, right. And so then in reading about that, that sort of coterie of French uh, realism at that time, it said, and Arnold Bennett was influenced by these people. I thought, who's Arnold Bennett? So I would have been 28, 29 when I found him and as soon as I found him, and that was The Old Wife's Tale, I read everything I could get my hands on. Mr. Prohack, Buried Alive, Grand Babylon Hotel, everything. <laughs> I was like, here he is at last. And the very thing that Wolf criticised him for him, those little tells, that was the magic for me. Uh. That was what I loved. So he wasn't saying she was nervous. 
he would say she buttoned and unbuttoned her cough and you knew she was nervous or you knew she was poor or whatever. These were things where he's not having to tell you what she's feeling or where she's been or where she fancies herself because he's going to describe the angle of her scarf, the jaunty yeah. angle of her hat. And to me, that is absolutely beautiful. So one of the things I think is really interesting about Wolf's response to Bennett is partly it was a fit of pique because he had been mildly unkind about her novel Jacob's Room. I mean, it's really Room. mild as well. I didn't know. Uh, Very mild. Yeah. About Jacob's Room. Again, another subject of a backlisted past episode. But also because Bennett was very influenced by Zola and realism, naturalism. By the late 1920s, naturalism was seen as being passé and therefore Bennett is synonymous with two regrettable tendencies. Mm. It was published the year after Ulysses yeah. and the year after yes, The Wasteland yes. was published. He told Eliot he didn't really see the point of The Wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> so Kit, could you read us, just set the scene for us, but also these, these couple of paragraphs are a good demonstration of that specificity Charlotte was talking about. This is the very beginning of Reisman's Steps. On an autumn afternoon of 1919, a hatless man with a slight limp might have been observed ascending the gentle, broad acclivity of Riceyman Steps, which lead from King's Cross Road up to Riceyman Square in the great metropolitan industrial district of Clerkenwell. He was rather less than stout and rather more than slim. His thin hair had begun to turn from black to grey, but his complexion was still fairly good and the rich, very red lips under a small grey moustache and over a short pointed beard were quite remarkable in their suggestion of vitality. The brown eyes seemed a little small. They peered at near objects. As to his age, an experienced and cautious observer of mankind without previous knowledge of this man would have said no more than that he must be past 40. The man himself was certainly entitled to say that he was in the prime of life. He wore a neat, dark grey suit, which must have been carefully folded at nights, a low, white, starched collar and a made black tie that completely hid the shirt front. The shirt cuffs could not be seen. He was shod in old black leather slippers, well polished. He gave an appearance of quiet, intelligent, refined and kindly prosperity and in his little eyes shone the varying lights of emotional sensitiveness. Reisman Steps, 20 in number, are divided by a half landing into two series of 10. The man stopped on the half landing and swung round with a casual air of purposelessness, which, however, concealed imperfectly a definite design. The suspicious and cynical, slyly watching his movements, would have thought, what's that fellow after? The description of that you just read there, Kit, right? I love what, what Bennett does with pushing you to the edge of why why am I, why are you telling me this? Why mm. why are you why are you this is almost sort of too much um, obsessional. Yeah. God, I must write everything down in order to then free you up. But what he does at the end of that bit you read is he then makes it clear that that's just the bedding for the drama which he's going to build on top of it, right? Like, John, in the in the bookshop, there are, are specific details. One of the things about Bennett 
that I have, and this is the only Arnold Bennett I've ever read. My mother was obsessed with Clayhanger when I when I was a kid, so we wa- I watched those, and it had that brilliant Peter McHenry as one of the characters, wonderful actor, but I'd never actually grappled with one. But I, I completely fell in love with Reisman's Steps, and part of it was because I I like everything like Kit. I like everything that Virginia Woolf was attacking. I like detail, and I mean check this out as as a book, former bookseller, the shop had one window in King's Cross Road, but the entrance with another window was in Reisman's Steps. The King's Cross Road window held only cheap editions in their paper jackets of popular modern novels such as those of Edith M. Dell, Charles Garvis, Zane Grey, Florence Barclay, Nat Gould and Jean Stratton Porter. The side window was set out with old books, first editions, illustrated editions and complete library editions in Calf or Morocco of renowned and serious writers whose works, indispensable to the collections of self-respecting book gentlemen, as distinguished from bookmen, have passed through decades of criticism into the impregnable paradise of eternal esteem. The side window was bound to attract the attention of collectors and bibliomaniacs. It seemed strangely, even fatally, out of place in that dingy and sordid neighbourhood, where existence was a dangerous and difficult adventure in almost frantic quest of food, drink and shelter, where the familiar and beloved landmarks were public houses and where the immense majority of the population read nothing but sporting prognostications and results and on Sunday mornings accounts of bloody crimes and juicy sexual irregularities. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Great. I mean, you're in the story, right? And we are to discover how much of this book is about the body and so much of that is bodily detail, isn't it? Life, death, accidents, drama, food. And these characters... The bookshop owner and his lover becomes wife, who owns the shop next door, are kind of going to starve themselves to death through their sheer meanness. Spoilers. Kit was saying, when I saw Kit the other day, she was saying one of the things about the novel <laughs> as it goes on is you keep thinking, ah, oh, it's going to turn a corner now. It can't get any worse for yeah. these people. They can't really be about to do that. But actually, it's the single-mindedness of them, right? Yes, Absolutely the way that they're almost toying with one another. It's almost a race to the bottom between (laughs) them. And that bloody-mindedness, obviously, of Mr Earl Forward, that she sort of thinks, well, if he's not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. It's terrible. And it is sort of saved by the sort of comic and sensitive person of Elsie, but I don't see her as anything other than this is how it could have been. I'm really fascinated by the two main players I, I completely agree it's almost gothic in, yes. in, in the way that he takes respectable middle-class middle-aged people and I mean <laughs> destroys them essentially but they destroy themselves they eat themselves up with their own pretension and their own stubbornness and and you're thinking all the time we who are these people why what drives them to such and it's a passion isn't it, it, it Mr Earl Forward's miserliness which is really the sort of enticing the um, inciting kind of it's a passion yeah Yeah. it's a passion it's almost sexual it's kind of perverse and then they sort of enable each other don't they as you say there's this race to the bottom he really reminded me of (laughs) another writer who (laughs) writes about fatally dysfunctional relationships in dingy surroundings in Back alleys of London. Patrick Hamilton. Yeah. It's absolutely oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick yeah, yeah, yeah. Hamilton. Yes, yes. Who I did get into the hundred 
Oh, well done. Hangover Square. Oh, yeah, great. How good was that? Hangover Square is, is kind of next door to the square here in a sense, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yeah. right. Right on the steps, but, twinned with. Uh, but, yeah. what, a, what a nice did thought. You, did you think? <laughs> did you think he had satirical purpose in this book, Bennett? I was trying to think that. Was he? Is he trying to kind of make us think that these people? It's because of their venality and their lack of, of, of culture that they are like this. I didn't really feel it I was do. a satire. No. I, I just thought he, it's like almost a novelist setting himself a task. I, I'm going to just let's follow the logic and see where we end up. Which I think is massively a Bennett thing to do. You mentioned the book with Priam Fall in it, Buried Alive. Yes. Buried Alive is a lovely, tiny novella, which Jorge Luis Borges Included in his favourite 70 novels, My 400 God, novels. Amazing, that's brilliant. But this book, Buried Alive, rests on a single incident, which is a painter, a reclusive, famous, famous painter who has lived abroad for a long time, comes back to England, comes to London, falls ill. No, his valet falls ill. Oh, I can't remember how it works. It doesn't really matter. The point is that... <laughs> When the doctor arrives, oh, that's right, Priam, the painter, the reclusive painter, opens the door and the doctor assumes that he is his own valet and the valet is in bed upstairs and dies. Anyway, there's a kind of switcheroo. Because he is so shy and so reclusive, the painter, Priam Fall, cannot bear to tell the doctor that he's wrong, so he just pretends to be his own valet and so when the real valet dies, he takes on the valet's identity. So he just follows. In other words, the whole of this little book rests on one tiny thing, which is the painter, famous painter, is too shy to reveal his own identity to the doctor on the doorstep. And he just follows the logic of that. And it's it's a yeah, beautiful. Okay. I think there is that. I, I, I think I there can, is a bit can, of just what I mean. There's yeah, a sense yeah. of, you know, what would happen if someone yeah, was yeah. so miserly that they would refuse to, even to feed themselves. And I think you'd have to ask in this book, what would have happened to Earl Ford had he not got married? Yeah. Because he was absolutely, in, I mean, he was a miser, but he was very in control of his miserliness until he got married. So he had his seven suits or whatever it was, waiting to wear these identical suits. He had his charwoman and he was eating very little, but he was eating. And he seemed to have, maybe that was his love affair. And the minute... He got married, everything started going wrong because I think he felt now, I'm going to have to start spending money. Even though she bought her own wealth, he felt quite threatened, I think, by the, by the marriage. And I think he would have survived longer had he not got married. Because by, by starving himself, he is proving a point, Yes, right? It's Absolutely. about control, as indeed many eating things are. Disorders, about, yes. Yeah, about proving control over the self and others in Absolutely. this case. It is a marriage for both sides, really, of convenience rather than yes. a passion. Charlotte, have you got a bit to... Um... Well, I was just thinking, when you said, what is this book really about? Yeah. I think Bennett tells us what it is about at the end of the novel when he gives us the newspaper headlines describing the incident that has uh, resulted in bad things happening. Sorry, spoilers, everybody. This is what the newspaper said. Mysterious death of a miser in Clerkenwell. <laughs> astounding story of love and death. I actually think it's yes. the astounding story of love and death. <laughs> yes. Midnight tragedy in King's Cross Road. But I think a astounding story yes. of love and death is sort of fine as a... As a 
potential blurb. Yes. <laughs> so it's almost like, yeah. So it's almost like let's take that sensational headline, and then let's forensically pick it, pick at it to see how we can do a round trip back to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, as you say, Kit. He's not going to do that, is he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, he, no, don't no, do that. Don't no. Do that. No. Oh, he is going to do that. It's yeah. the remorselessness of Bennett pursuing the logical progression of the character that he's built. For me, one of the funniest bits in the novel is when it's their honeymoon and the new <laughs> Mrs. Elford has arranged for the disgusting, stinky, dusty, <laughs> kind of our, our mutual friend-like <laughs> bookshop to be vacuum-cleaned. They come back and he says... The shop's on fire, which is because the lights are on. The lights are on. And then, then anyway, the vacuum cleaners Uh, do their work. And and as they're leaving, he says to one of the vacuum cleaning men, what do you do with the dirt? Do you sell it? Which is a very... (laughs) (laughs) The the psychopathology of of miserliness is nothing. No one has ever written it as brilliantly. I mean, it's... And it's, it is both comic but also horrifying yes. because we've all been there, you know, maybe I should just turn these, turn these lights off. You know, it's quite easy yes. to get into that, that sort of mindset. Are you saying it's relatable? <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I, I think might surprise listeners about Arnold Bennett's key fact is he invented the word sexy. No, oh, no. Yeah, that is good. He invented the word sexy in a letter in 1896, and he is in the Oxford English Dictionary Brilliant. as the earliest recorded use of the word sexy. No way. In the I meaning didn't that, know that we in the meaning that we would understand it here in 2019. That's so impressive. Revelation. Was that before he left Stoke? <laughs> he discovered sexy in Stoke, not in Paris. <laughs> Put the sexy back in Stoke. That is, um, that's that's great fact. I mean, you know, that's, that, that's, that's fabulous. I'll just say a little bit about Arnold Bennett himself. So Arnold Bennett was born on May the 27th, 1867 in Hanley, Staffordshire, the Potteries. Uh, Charlotte, I'm going to give you a quick quiz. I will give you the name of the actual town in the Potteries Mm -hmm. and I want you to give me the Arnold Bennett name for that same town. That's the difficult way around. Do you want it the easy? We'll we'll, we'll give it a good go. All right, okay. So, the six towns of Stoke-on-Trent are Turnstall. Oh, Tunstall is Turnhill in Bennett. Hanley is Hanbridge. Stoke is Knype. Burslem is Bursley. Have I missed any? Fenton doesn't exist. That's the trick one. That's and right. And is- there's one more. Oh, Longton is Longshore. Oh, unbelievable. very good. Unbelievable. And now I know why you won the Arnold Bennett Prize. <laughs> it wasn't a pop quiz on <laughs> It should have been. I would have won it. Anyway, so he was born in Hanley in Staffordshire in 1867. He was, as is uh, outlined in several of the books, he worked for his father, who was a miser, who made him be a rent collector, which he hated. And so he ran away to London became a journalist, was a prolific journalist. He was the editor of Woman magazine, which he edited until about 1900. And then in 1903, he moved to Paris, 
where he lived until 1911 and very much in the kind of demi-monde of artistic Paris at that time in the same and, circles and that as... Was, that it was, was mates he, with Ravel and yeah. Yeah, yeah. very glamorous. And that was when he got his kind of taste for the for Zola and Robertson. Mm. And then he, he comes back to the UK... Between 1914 to 1918, he is director of propaganda for France, for which he is offered and then refuses a knighthood. I know. Good good man, right? He's then offered, Lord Beaverbrook offers him a weekly column about books in the Evening Standard. And that is another reason why younger writers disliked him so much. That although he did great work in terms of distributing money to younger writers and was very supportive of younger writers, Mm. many of them perceived him as part of the problem because he was seen as a pontificator and a big personality, yeah. and you know the will self of his day, <laughs> pontificating <laughs> about the about death him. of the novel or, yes. or, or or whatever. But he, the personality becomes more notorious than the work. Yes, let us not call him the will self. <laughs> God. Anyway, yes. But but nonetheless, he's yeah. also prolific, and he writes, as we say, many novels, but also non-fiction. Mm. And Kit, you were going to read us a bit from a book which was a real bestseller in its day. It's very short. It's the first real self-help book. Wasn't and it? It's called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And it's still really popular, this book. There are about half a dozen different versions of it on Audible. Absolutely. And in the States, it's clearly yeah. far and away the the book for which Arnold Bennett is known. Um, it is genuinely considered to be the first self popular yeah. self-help book. It's also best title of anything I've ever read. <laughs> Okay, this is is from the beginning, but it's not at the beginning. Philosophers have explained space. They have not explained time. It is the inexplicable raw material of everything. With it, all is possible. Without it, nothing. The supply of time is truly a daily miracle, an affair genuinely astonishing when one examines it. You wake up in the morning and lo, your purse is magically filled with 24 hours of the unmanufactured tissue of the universe of your life. It is yours. It is the most precious of possessions, a highly singular commodity showered upon you in a manner as singular as the commodity itself. For remark, no one can take it from you. It is unstealable and no one receives either more or less than you. Talk about an ideal democracy. In the realm of time, there is no aristocracy of wealth and no aristocracy of intellect. Genius is never rewarded by even an extra hour a day. And there is no punishment. Waste your infinitely precious commodity as much as you will and the supply will never be withheld from you. No mysterious power will say, this man is a fool, if not a knave. He does not deserve time. He shall be cut off at the metre. It is more certain than consuls and payment of income is not affected by Sundays. Moreover, you cannot draw on the future. Impossible to get into debt. You can only waste the passing moment. You cannot waste tomorrow. It is kept for you. You cannot waste the next hour. It is kept for you. Well, you said Charlie's taking a nice deep sigh of satisfaction listening to that. Right. And you were saying to me, you find that quite inspiring. I really do. I can remember I read this when I was, you know, in my 20s. And I thought, yeah, it's really clever. Now that I'm 
nearly 60. You know, time is the thing that we run out of. And I'm reading this now thinking, yes, I'll have 24 hours. And the whole book is about, he divides the, the day into what you have to do, your eight hours of, of work, and what you want to do and what you should do about reading and self-improvement and having fun. And he says, get up a bit earlier if you can. Don't say you can't get up early. Everyone can get up yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's that sort of tone that you're kidding yourself if you say you haven't got time for something because you have got time. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. There is stuff in How to Live in 20, on 24 Hours a Day and in another book that I'm just going to um, share with you in a minute where I was reading them thinking... I thought I had cracked this stuff in the year of reading dangerously. It's so close to some of the things I talk about, about how, what, how you should use your commute or, yeah, yeah. Or, or not being scared of reading things that you don't necessarily get straight away because what matters is you train your brain up and all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's what Bennett's doing in these Absolutely. books a mere hundred plus years before I came along <laughs> to, to make the same point. Like there's a book called Literary Taste, How to Form It. <laughs> Which I guffawed all the way through because, first of all, is very he's very he's got that journalistic. It's quite provocative. It's sort of why shouldn't you try this? I sort of know I'm being slightly mischievous, but at the same time, I mean it. And there are a couple of bits. There's this this quote could have come out of you reading dangerously. If you differ with a classic, it is you who are wrong and not the book. If you differ with a modern work. You may be wrong or you may be right, but no judge is authoritative enough to decide. <laughs> and the idea of that section is, why is a classic a classic? It's trying to say to the reader, you know, if you read whatever book it is, if you read Reisman's Steps and you don't like Reisman's Steps, if enough people are telling you Reisman's Steps is a great book, it probably is a great book. And it might be worth taking a step back and thinking about why yeah. you don't get it. Yes. Right. And so we were talking about this earlier about have we read books that, We'd gone off or books that we you know the reverse process here's the beginning of chapter three of literary taste how to form it why a classic is a classic the large majority of our fellow citizens care as much about literature as they care about aeroplanes or the program of the legislature they do not ignore it they are not quite indifferent to it but their interest in it is faint and perfunctory or if their interest happens to be violent, it is spasmodic. <laughs> Ask the 200,000 persons whose enthusiasm made the vogue of a popular novel 10 years ago what they think of that novel now, and you will gather that they have utterly forgotten it and that they would no more dream of reading it again than of reading Bishop Stubbs's select charters. <laughs> Probably if they did read it again, they would not enjoy it. Not because the said novel is a whit worse now than it was 10 years ago, not because their taste has improved, but because they have not had sufficient practice to be able to rely on their taste as a means of permanent pleasure. Now, that's brilliant. Brilliant. I don't know if we agree with that or disagree. I think that's debatable. But I like the willingness to challenge the reader is actually yeah. the thing I like in that. It's quite old-fashioned yeah. in its uh, thinking, you know, that you, you read for self-improvement or you read to, you know, for edification rather than entertainment. Yeah. That's quite an old-fashioned, you know, certainly when I was at school, that's what I would have been told. I think now people are much more likely to say, if you don't like it, dump it, it doesn't matter. 
I think also there's a generosity to it and a brio. And I think when I think about Bennett, I always do think about brio and energy. You know, this is a man who left my dear old Stoke-on-Trent as fast as he jolly well could from absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know, he paid his way. You know, he was obsessed with money and he did have a taste for fine living and he did die because he refused to pay for bottled water in France and drank <laughs> tap water and died of typhoid. He did clearly in, have... In order a, to demonstrate that there was nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Strange <laughs> relationship with the world in some ways. But this sort of energy and enthusiasm and... In a funny way, Reisman Steps is, I'd say it's, in some ways it's atypical because just because of the fun sponge kind of yeah. characterization of the central characters. But a lot of the books do have these great sort of zest for life people at the centre of them. And I think I'm a bit sad we haven't spoken a bit more about Staffordshire as the, as the locus of his work because I do think that that sort of regional thing is terribly important and the way he makes these rather glum industrial landscapes magnificent yeah so is there a problem with Bennett that he writes so much he doesn't do a lot of research he's an expert on the potteries but as is inevitable with many writers or artists or musicians as they become successful they're writing about a subject that's increasingly remote to them because Bennett's on his yacht in the south of France he's not in I don't know. I don't know about Bursley. that. I think sometimes to be away from your home or away from someone, only then can you see the entirety of it. It's like being too up close to a painting. You actually need like 10 Joyce, feet Like Joyce writing, writing about and, Dublin. And James Baldwin yeah. writing about America. Yeah. He was in Paris. But he had that distance which gave him the whatever it required for him to say, there it is, I'm going to tell you about it. And sometimes when you're in it, it's too much, you can't do it. Uh, 100%, yeah, I absolutely agree. And funnily enough, I couldn't read Bennett until I'd left Stoke. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because he was too much part of yeah. the scenery, yeah, yeah. mental sort of weather. And so it took me to move to quite near Reisman Steps to read Reisman Steps hmm. and, to read, and to read everything else. And he's brilliant in this book about London. I love Clerkenwell was a murmuring green land of municipal springs, wells, streams with mills on their banks, nunneries, aristocrats and holy clerks who presented mystery plays. This is uh, Earl Forward when he's fantasising about how he's going to seduce Mrs Arp with his deep understanding of, of Clerkenwell's history. She just thinks it's a shabby, nasty neighbourhood. <laughs> We're going to have to hang the clothes sign in the, uh, in the bookshop window, move the cheap paperbacks out from the, uh, their place on the pavement inside. I'd love to thank Kit and Charlotte for recovering the brio and charm of Arnold Bennett. I'm going to read a lot more. To Nicky Birch for keeping our levels level and to Unbound for setting out that stall of old and tattered books. <laughs> you can download all 106 episodes plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm and we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter, Facebook or Boundless. We'll be back in about a fortnight for our Christmas special sooner than you'd believe or hope so thank you for listening if you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts you can sign up to our Patreon it's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted as well as getting the show early you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listeds, which is Andy, me and Nikki 
talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.